kids. Stop watching Office Space and listen up. It's time for another stellar edition of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Karen Cavallaro here to announce show number 57 with guest Marcus Egger, recorded live Friday, March 26, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VB.NET and ASP.NET classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man known in small circles as Hell's Boy's real trainer, Carl Franklin. Thanks. All right. Welcome to another stellar edition of .NET Rocks. This is Carl here in New London with my uh, partner in crime, my compadre, Mr. Rory. That's right. I'm here. Um, never mind that. And uh, <laughs> Rory, what's up, man? Hi. Mr. Teapot. <laughs> The uh, live listeners got a chance to hear Rory sing not only I'm a Little Teapot, but uh, a Tom Jones tune. A partial verse a of partial. Tom Jones's uh, everlasting hit Sex Bomb. So, you know, if you really want to hear the, the real fun stuff, you got to tune in live. And we do this show live every Friday at noon Eastern Time. So, what's been happening this week, man? Well, I started working this week at a company... I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say. It was one of those weeks where I signed a lot of papers. Yeah. And, uh, we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, you just don't have time to read all that stuff. Company. So you just figure company. Yeah, so I work for company right now as a contractor. <laughs> Got started there, doing a lot of .NET stuff. That's been pretty cool. And I uh, also moved into my apartment. That's right. really nice. Yeah. I mean, what I'm getting here for 800 bucks a month, I could never get back in Portland. Yeah. Not in a million years. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with that. And I've got a view of your office from my apartment. Right. And you a know. few of the, uh, you know, the street people and uh, <laughs> yeah, in the vertical SR-71. And I can hear the occasional scream coming from down below in the streets, but I mean, it's not that bad. But it's a happy scream. It's a scream of joy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Take my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. No, we we run a clean city here. Well, anyway, uh, I, I saw this on the web. I just wanted to read it. It's a, it's a news item. Microsoft to remove the calculator from Windows. News from Repo. The country Repo threatens Microsoft to pay a fine as much as 10% of its global annual sales for monopoly defenses. The software giant is abusing its monopoly power by bundling several applications, such as the calculator and paint, with Windows. The process against Microsoft was started by the company named Nisbum. Nisbum developed a great calculator, but doesn't see the chance to sell this great product to the masses as long as Microsoft bundles the calculator with Windows. According to Repo, Microsoft must offer at least two separate versions of Windows, one without the calculator. Repo is giving Microsoft a last opportunity to comment before the case is concluded. Are you serious? No. Okay, thank God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was, uh, 
It was satire that became uh, a real topic of a hot topic on Christian Nagel's OneNotes weblog at uh, weblogs.asp.net slash cnagel. And uh, people had that reaction. They just couldn't believe it. They thought it was, <laughs> you know, and it turns out to be satire. Yeah. So. Because I would have freaked out if that well, had I been see a that real happening. sort of thing. Yeah, I could see sure. That happening. Yeah. I mean, you know, how far will you go, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, guess what, uh, Rory? Uh, our old pal Mark Dunn, uh, I was chatting with him last night, and he uh, sent me an email. He wanted to drop by, and uh, he couldn't call in because he's actually uh, in a meeting today. Okay. But he did offer us this uh, greeting <clears throat> and a story. Hey, Carl and Rory, I have to say that I'm thoroughly enjoying listening to you two on .NET Rocks. You really, really have me excited. That's pretty, pretty good coming from him. I mean... Takes a lot to excite Mark. You know? Are you hiked up higher than a prom <laughs> dress in June? <laughs> Carl, you couldn't have picked a better replacement for me than Rory. He's great, and the show is definitely getting better all the time. Oh, oh, stop great. it. Stop it. I wanted to lay this story on you to reinforce what our listeners already know, that .NET does indeed rock. So I'm teaching a custom ADO.NET class for three days this week to two guys from a military client. Turns out both of them absolutely hate Microsoft. Wow. They could care less about the course material, and they told me they had to learn ADO.net because their boss, quote, had his head up his ass, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Rough crowd. (laughs) Well, by midday Wednesday, I had them just about turned around. I took an approach of not arguing with them. In fact, I sort of agreed with many of their Java arguments. I kept hitting them with the architecture of .net and how well it positions Microsoft to compete in the future. I asked them if they were military lifers or if they had ideas about entering the private sector at some point. <laughs> anyway, both are big .NET fans now and can't wow. wait to start their new project. Mark, cool. How cool is that? That is really cool. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's a testament not only to .NET but to Mark's great teaching skills. So, uh, so as you know, this is the time when we read uh, email, not just from previous co-hosts but uh, from, from the masses. And we like to do this to give away some swag. We got plenty of swag to give away. And uh, today we're going to be giving away .NET Rocks clocks. Uh, that's a, a, a real clock, an analog clock, not a digital clock, but a analog clock with a clock face. And it's about, oh, I don't know, 9 or 10 inches in diameter. And uh, has our ugly mugs on it. That's the only uh, not .NET rocks mugs, but he means our faces. There our aren't like faces. two mugs pasted on the front of the clock, right? right. That's slang for picture. <laughs> yeah, that's East Coast slang. <laughs> yeah, shut your mug, see? Yeah. Uh, so this one comes from uh, Michael Peltz. He says, "Howdy, I stumbled across .NET rocks a couple weeks ago. You guys are great. You were the straw that broke the camel's back to motivate me to get high speed web access." All right, so if we're the final straw that broke, man, you have been holding out for a long time. We should be getting kickbacks too. We should be from the high speed internet companies. I mean, if this is if this is what it takes to get you to go to DSL <laughs> or cable, man, I would. Uh, anyway, you have no life. But anyway, I wanted to give you some feedback on the VB videos. Oh, the videos that we've been doing, the how to yeah. videos. They're great. That's the feedback. <laughs> Keep up the good work. That's good feedback, I guess. Yeah. Michael, congratulations good to, to hear. You know, own a rocks clock. Chris Podmore says, Hi, guys. Thought I would drop you a quick line and see if I can't win myself a .NET Rocks coffee mug. Well, sorry, Chris, but we're giving out clocks today, so you get a clock. 
Seriously, thanks for last week's show with John Box and Dan Fox. It was excellent. I haven't done much with the Compact Framework yet. Our current offering is an embedded is in embedded VB, and as you said on the show last week, you've done some embedded yeah, VB. Yeah, done some embedded. Hope you VB. never have to do any more again. The Compact Framework is nice, much nicer. Uh, I look forward to rewriting it for the Compact Framework. A big thanks to Rory about holding vector points instead of bitmaps. Our product certainly saves signatures as bitmaps, but I will give Rory's idea a try once we do the rewrite. Yeah. Keep up the good work. I can't wait for my next fix of .NET Rocks. (laughs) (laughs) It's like crack, right? Yeah, I can see him kind of smacking the arm with the fingers, (laughs) getting ready to tie it on. The first one's free. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, this comes from Matt Swift, uh, who's in the U.K., and I think Chris Padmore is also in the U.K., wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of uh, listeners across the pond. We're in actually over 50 countries. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's uh, that's a lot of countries. Yeah, we have a lot of countries out there listening to us. A lot of people in a lot of countries. Okay, so Matt Swift says, Hey, guys, I'm a .NET developer in the UK. I graduated last year, and so this is my first real work. I had no experience of .NET and had been trained using Java, some C++, and some really old but cool stuff like Pascal. Really old. Man. <laughs> now it's just me who feels really old. So I guess I was lucky that I got a chance to learn about .NET. I'd never really thought about it, but now I'm using it. I think it's totally awesome. I call it a programmer's paradise. Not to confuse that with the company programmer's paradise, but it really is. I really want to say that what you guys do is great. Show host Carl and Rory give out great info, have some great guests, and inject a massive dose of hilarity into the whole thing. Maybe there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't appreciate all the humor that goes into the show, but I'd oh, say there are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'd say that any developer can't help but laugh their ass off at some of the conversations and features you guys come up with. Uh, he goes on to basically praise and, and kiss our butts, and that's good enough for us. Thank man. you very much. Definitely good enough. Uh, this one is from Lars Larson. I don't know where he's from, but he says, Hey, Carl. At one time back in 1999-2000, I was a fairly happy dude. I was teaching VB and SQL 7 to classes of eager students from Sacramento to Phoenix at nearly a grand a day. Those were the days. Then all of a sudden it stopped and I was back to being a plain old DBA. .NET, therefore, kind of took me by surprise, and I'm now in a new position and hoping to ramp myself up. I want to tell you, Ben, your show has been an almost daily meal for me. I'm very impressed with the presentation and feel. Uh, I just now listened and watched the little demo you and Rory did about objects and .NET, the little demo, where we were talking <laughs> about that little word. Um, although I understood it before I began to listen, I love the analogies you used, being an analogy smith myself, and look forward to more from you too. My new job places me in an interesting place. My main responsibilities focus on the Solomon financial package and its customization. Not much .NET going on there. But I'm also tasked to get up to speed on Microsoft CRM and Business Portal, both of which are built upon the .NET framework. In time, there may be an opportunity for me to attend your course either on-site or remotely. I just wanted to let you know how well I think you are doing. This may, in fact, be as close to a fan letter that I have ever written in my life, and I must say that I'm a bit embarrassed, but what the hell? (laughs) You rock! (laughs) Five exclamation points. All right, a final letter comes from uh, Giuseppe who's writing from Bologna in Italy. I am a C-sharp guy who plays the role of evangelist inside our tiny development team. 
I earned this position because I love programming languages, and I had some experience with Java, Perl, VB, and C. Today, I prefer the, the .NET framework. Today, I prefer the .NET framework over J2EE. I'm not really interested in the religion war between C Sharp, VBNet, and Java, because I appreciate the internal coherenza of .NET framework. Sorry, I should say consistency, but I would like to hear the word coherenza <laughs> from your mouths. And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's C O E R. E-N-Z-A. Quarenza, I'm thinking. Quarenza. Quarenza. <laughs> I don't actually know. Yeah. Maybe it's an Enza. Enza. I, by the way, I emailed Enza. him back and asked for a phonetic spelling, but apparently he had gone to bed because hmm. some people sleep, I've heard. Inconsistency is one of the hardest features to find in software, and it is the one that I appreciate a lot. And now a semi-technical thought I would like to share with you and your listeners. When I saw the demo of Microsoft Longhorn held in Milan two months ago, uh, that day there were stellar speakers like David Chappell, Lester Madden, Clemens Vasters, Hans Vierbeck, and Nigel Watling. I was happy to go back to my happy days when I used to play with Apple HyperCard. The feature that pushed me into the past was navigable application. In my opinion, Apple HyperCard was an extraordinary piece of software that brought to the Mac users a visual IDE, a scripting language with hypertext features, and the stack metaphor in building applications. And the stack metaphor resembles a lot the concept behind navigable application. Quality ideas never go out of style. What about a stellar .NET Rocks edition about the good ideas that Apple, as a software house, brought into the developer's universe? Hmm. That would be interesting. It would be interesting. Yeah. You know, Scoble really digs the Mac, too, and I, I never really got and into I've got it. my PowerBook. But, um, yeah, yeah, Steve would be proud. Although we won't let Steve Jobs read your blog. <laughs> I say good things about Apple, but I'm pretty critical. Yeah. You know. Thank you a lot for your talk show. It is my weekly drug, and I put at least two show tablets in my MP3 player <laughs> when I go biking. What is this drug theme? Is, I, is there going to be like a, like a .NET Rocks Anonymous? It's, <laughs> it's happened before. I mean, it really has. People, people compare us to crack all the time. That's... Uh kind of freaky yes it's it's not good well you have come we have come to the point let me say that again well we have come to the place in our show where we like to do a little segment we call the google weirdos so, Rory, what is Google Weirdos? Well, regular listeners are probably sick and tired of hearing the explanation, but Google Weirdos, all right, I run a site called Neopolian.com, and I go through my logs regularly, and I like to take a look at how people are getting to my site. So I look at all the Google searches that have come through in the uh, referrals, and I like to find the strangest ones and put them together for this little segment we call Google Weirdos. And uh, it's kind of exciting um, because a lot of the stuff that people are jamming through Google is just totally out of this world weird stuff. Sometimes it's not so weird, and I'll have my own commentary to spice it up a bit, like this week. And uh, sometimes it's just completely nuts, like last week. Uh, the other thing that's happening is people are starting to contact me through Google Weirdos now. They're using it as a sort of cheap one-way email system. So what I like to do is I first read the, the messages that people have sent to me through Google, and then I move on to the actual searches. And a lot of the searches obviously were not intended to land at my site, so it's pretty cool. So the first shout-out to Rory through Google 
is you are the only Rory for me. And that 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 was actually a campaign set up by uh I'm going to ruin this name but Aaron Waker um, Waker it's something like that. Uh dot com. His site's not up right now. Don't know what happened, but he uh he was getting his readers to punch that into Google, which is pretty cool. Next one is Rory is a beer drinking assimilated Kool-Aid drinking and homeless mocha frappuccino latte macchiato. <laughs> can't believe i was able to say that um i don't know what that means but i guess it's an insult uh so whatever <laughs> next one is roy Blythe hates linux you might like you might like you might like to tell that to jeff who just gave me a, a shell account on his system his debian system i don't hate it but it's good to know what's going on in that world yeah in fact you think it's pretty cool i mean if you're like me i think it's cool i think it's cool well i like it and i've said this before i like it the same way my grandfather likes his boat Right, he likes it better when it's at the side of his house than when it's actually in the water. He likes to tinker. It right. bothers him when the thing is actually working. And for me, Linux provides a challenge, a technical challenge that other well put together OSs like Windows and OS ten don't provide. I mean it's a struggle just to keep the thing up and running for me sometimes. Right. And the hate mail will flow. So <laughs> next one is Rory Thingy Foundation. It's pretty cool. I'm I'm out there. I'm out there in the charitable world doing my part for spreading awareness of uh of the thingy, whatever that is. <laughs> and some people don't seem to like Rory Blythe very, very much because the next search is Rory Blythe sucks ass. Oh. It's obviously about a different Rory Blythe, though, right? I mean, there's tons obviously. of them out there. Not about me. And last <laughs> last shout-out to me through Google is Rory Blythe, I'm at a VB net shop, and I'm having C-sharp withdrawals. I feel your pain, <laughs> my friend, but you know what I saw Chris Sells do once when he had to code in VB net for a demo? At the end of all of his uh, VBNet lines, for example, if it were an if statement, he would put the tick for the, uh, for the comment, and then right after the tick, he'd put a curly brace. So you can go on ahead and stick in your curly braces after ticks and stick your semicolons in after ticks. So you can make your VBNet look at least a little bit like C-sharp. That'll make you feel better. <laughs> so now we move on to the actual searches. Right. These uh, are the fun. I love these. The I, best. Don't, I don't know how these get to. Yeah, I got to read the other ones because it's cool. It's like it's like my own little portion of fan mail and also Roy Blythe sucks ass mail. So the, <laughs> the, these are the actual searches. And I don't know. I don't know how this first one got to my site at all. Sweaty Adam. You know, who's Sweaty Adam? What kind of weird <laughs> stuff is on how to get to my site? Next one. Thailand Robert Scoble pornography. I like oh, that. You know, hey, man. Scoble, is there something you forgot to blog about? <laughs> Take a trip recently? <laughs> be interesting to truly hear about weird. that truly truly <laughs> weird well what is this person looking for they obviously had some idea right i mean robert scoble that is not vague no it's you absolutely they in thailand to find something yeah thailand pornography they want to find you know porn of robert scoble in, in thailand. thailand you know you know, who doesn't so next one is comcast support phone number and that on its own is really funny if you ever tried to deal with comcast <laughs> tech support i don't even need to add anything to that it's like an oxymoron comcast support phone number yeah next one is my girlfriend naked all i have to say is that if you're searching for this it probably means that photos of her are out there on the web right and you're gonna have some explaining to do if she ever finds them so good yeah, luck now, with that my I friend put those naked pictures <laughs> of my girlfriend <laughs> let me google them the next one is about firefox which is the new name for the stripped down version of the mozilla browser formerly known as firebird which has probably gone through like 50 name changes. And uh, and it's Firefox browser and safety. Like you're afraid it's going to leap out of your computer and go for your jugular and rip it out. And I don't know what the safety uh, thing's about there. Jeez. Got another one. Proctologist in New Jersey. 
See, that's not that funny, but how did it wind up on my blog? You know, that's some messed up stuff right there. Why, why are people getting my blog with a search for New Jersey proctologists? I don't, I don't represent them. That, uh, you know, what can you say about that? I mean. <laughs> it's just more about <laughs> me, I guess. Uh, Larry Ellison bastard. And right on, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I do agree with that. Um, here's another good one. I, I have no idea what this is. Monkey meep. The word monkey followed by the word meep. M-E-E-P. Monkey meep. You know, and what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, it, it almost sounds, I mean, monkey meep. Monkey meep. Monkey meep. It, it, it's it, a it, mantra. It's, well, a, it's a zen mantra. I was actually thinking it almost sounded like a dessert topping or something. <laughs> you know? Like, hey, does anybody want ice cream? Yeah, but don't forget the monkey meep. Get a nice dollop of monkey meep on the top. I don't know what it is, monkey meep. Anyway, somebody found it at my side, I guess. Oh, man. Here's, an, here's another one that's not so funny on its own, but is interesting when you put it in perspective. I need to know some background info about a company called Walgreens. See, I like these because of the way That's they're... A sentence. I like the way they're phrased, though, because it seems like whoever's doing the search thinks that he's talking to the computer of the future. Computer, right. give me all the information you have on the company called Walgreens. Names, dates, major events with a focus <laughs> on wartime activities. Go now. <laughs> like, it's just supposed to come back with this huge printout of results that it finds. Someday people are going to refer to this uh, episode as, remember when we thought this was science fiction? <laughs> right. <laughs> Monkey Meep and... <laughs> yeah. Remember when Monkey Meep was just a <laughs> gleam in Rory's eye? <laughs> no, it's everywhere, yeah. And uh, does that conclude the Google Weirdos? No. Okay. You got another one, World's Smallest Freezer, which I think is Scott McNeely's heart. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Burn. Ouch. And then the last one is How to Tell a Horse's Age. And I always thought you just cut them in half and counted the rings, but <laughs> maybe somebody else knows better than I do, so... That's that's Google Weirdos for the week. It's not always as weird, you know, than it was the week before, but whatever. Well, Rory, before we introduce our guest, um, I'd like to announce that Microsoft has generously donated uh, a free past a tech ed 2004 for us to give away sweet yeah so uh one of the lucky listeners out there is going to win a free pass now tech ed uh, 2004 is in may uh-huh and it's in san diego all right yours truly is speaking there and we're also doing a couple of different sessions there as dotnet rocks that we're going to record and then pull pieces of and and that's going to be part of an upcoming show after tech ed yeah so come and find us if you're going to be there Definitely, if yeah. you're going to TechEd, come and find us. We're doing two things. We're doing uh, a .NET Rocks session in the Cabana, and we're doing a .NET Rocks session as a Inetta BOF session, a Birds of a Feather session. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, give away clues, and we're going to give away one clue every every week from now until the end of April. And those clues are going to be ways in which you can find a word. And we're going to, you're going to put all those words together to make a sentence. And then at the end of April, if you've got the right sentence, well, even if you don't, if you think you have the right sentence, you send that sentence to us through, uh, through the website, which we will, you know, we'll have all this stuff up. And from those people who get it right, we're going to do a drawing. Sounds good? Sounds good. <laughs> I'm glad uh, I don't have to play. <laughs> it yeah. Sounds hard, but you well, know you that's know. what it is. It's a it's a high price ticket item. This is, a, a, this is a big prize. Yeah, this isn't just yeah. a you know a box. This is this is a, a very 
very expensive ticket. Yeah. And if the tech ed, if you haven't ever gone, this is Microsoft's party, basically. Yeah. Right? Cabana. I mean, Cabana. There's going to be sand and booze. I mean, yeah. you, let's, uh, all right. <laughs> so, Rory, our guest today is none other than the one and only Marcus Egger from EPS Software. And uh, he is of Code Magazine and EPS Software. He's the president and chief software architect of EPS, and they are a custom development and consulting firm located in Houston, Texas. He specializes in consulting for object-oriented development, internet development, B2B, and web services. EPS does most of its development using Microsoft Visual Studio.net. EPS has worked on numerous software projects for Fortune 500 companies, including Philip Morris, Qualcomm, Shell, and Microsoft. And he's also worked as a contractor for the Microsoft Visual Studio team, where he is mostly responsible for object modeling and other OOP and component-related technologies. He's an international speaker, having presented sessions at numerous conferences, including a number of conferences in North America and Europe. And, you know, the, the amazing resume goes on and on and on. If you want to read more, go to the website. Marcus, how are you doing, sir? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? Great. Doing all right, too, yeah. So, so where are you now? Uh, at this very moment, I'm actually in San Jose, California. And um, coincidentally, I'm visiting the Game Developer Conference right now. Oh, cool. Despite the fact that I'm not a game developer, but hey, what the heck. What are you doing <laughs> out there? Vacation or? Um, well, the show is uh, relatively interesting for us because as a developer magazine, whenever 10,000 software developers get together, <laughs> yeah. of course, we have some interest in that. Um, so I have that excuse to come here. Partially, I'm also just plain interested in it myself as, as kind of a, you know, what is what cool stuff is coming down uh, the graphics pipeline, for yeah. instance. You always seem to be, uh, to me, on the cutting edge of, of cool in terms of the stuff that you've been working on developer-wise. You really got heavy into tablet PC development and uh, Windows Forms objects and visual inheritance. And uh, I don't know, you always seem to be uh, sort of a, on doing that high-tech stuff. You yeah, like you that. know, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's my passion. So it's pretty cool to be able to do all this stuff and, and actually call it a job. <laughs> And people uh, are probably asking, you know, where do you come from? Uh, your, where's your, where are your roots, uh, Europe, European-wise? So, so what are you saying? You're saying I'm, I'm having an accent? No, no. Well, it's definitely <laughs> we not have a Texas the accent, straw. All right. It's definitely not a Texas <laughs> yeah, straw, Marcus. That's right. Um, I, I live in Texas right now, but I'm, I'm originally from Austria, um, center of Europe, for those who don't know. Uh, Mozart's birthplace So the city of Salzburg. The actual city where Mozart was born. It's, I'm not actually right in the city. I'm about 30, 45 minutes into the mountains, uh, mm-hmm. center of skiing, center of tourism type of place. But of course, now you you say know, I'm probably I'm, closer to the city of Salzburg than I'm closer to the center of Houston right now, despite the fact that I claim to live in Houston. You say <laughs> I'm there. Do you have family there still? Did you grow up there? What, what's the? Well, I grew up there, and I've really only lived in the U.S. for the last maybe four or five years or something like that. Wow. Although before that, I have been traveling back and forth between Europe and the U.S. quite a bit when I did quite a number of projects here. But yeah, I still have strong roots in Europe, and I do go back to Austria three, four times a year or something like that. And uh, in fact, still have a place there, so oh, gonna cool. get the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Does, does I've never been to Salzburg. Do they have like you know Mozart Day? 
Uh, we don't have Mozart Day, but you know you can walk through through uh, the old town of Salzburg, which is you know the happening place. Right, so I've heard it's very charming, very castle, a lot of castles and fairy tale looking. Yep, in fact, the center of town is is the big castle, which is what the town is named after. Salzburg means uh, salt castle. So, oh wow, huge fortress in the center of town, and you know as you walk around, you'll be in front of Mozart's birth house or stuff like that, which. You know, we never really noticed, but every time I bring somebody there, it's like, yeah, you know, that actually is pretty cool. So the word, the, the suffix Berg means mm-hmm. castle, literally? That means castle, yeah. So like Hamburg, Germany is Ham Castle? Uh, <laughs> and Pittsburgh is the Pitts Castle? or I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. That's pretty cool. So uh, what do you want to talk about first? The uh, the object stuff you've been doing in Windows Forms or Tablet PC? or I mean, you've, you've got well, a lot of stuff is, to talk about. Is there's a ton of things, really, yeah. So I don't know what the listener might be most interested in. I, I think, think they're interested in everything, really. Oh, excellent. That gives us a great starting point right there. Um, <laughs> sort of narrows I, I it down for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Theory of relativity, go. <laughs> <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> no, I think uh, the whole topic of topic of object-oriented development, in, in my mind, is a pretty important one. I, I agree. I think it uh, is really the foundation, or at least it should be the foundation of everything we do today, and, and especially with technologies like Visual Studio.net, where all the languages, including VB.net, now have strong object-oriented features. That's really what makes .NET tick, in my opinion. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the main reasons I... I never liked VB6 very much just because it was what I would call object-based, where mm, you yeah. definitely work with objects, but you know, it wasn't really object-oriented in terms of having features like inheritance. And yeah, that was really the key. No exactly. inheritance sort of blows the whole model. It was definitely tacked on, you know, you can tell. Exactly. And I think now we got the perfect scenario, right? Not only do we have inheritance, but we have cross-language inheritance oh, that the so whole cool, framework yeah. is based upon. So, so I'm kind of in... You know, .NET heaven, if you want. Right. What kinds of things have you done with um, with your... Now, I know you've developed at, at uh, EPS uh, a framework, an application framework that involves... Because I know, because I've seen it, you've actually demonstrated to me, that involves a lot of Windows Forms. You've, done, you've created your own versions of the controls in Windows Forms, DLL, and your own, your own forms that are particular to your uh, the kinds of applications that you write. So... So listeners out there, basically they've got it so that anytime they need to create a particular type of application, it's just, oh, let's start with this base class that has like explorers and master detail lists and all this great stuff. And they just plug them in, bind them the right way, set a few properties, and and they're off to the races. I I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, that's basically you've you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, The framework, or as we call it, the platform, the the product is actually a trademarked product or a trademarked name called the Milo Solution Platform. And what we try to do is we basically try to make our own developer life a lot easier. What we do at EPS is we, we write generally enterprise-level applications or business applications in general, also smaller ones. And we notice that we do the same thing over and over and over again. I don't think I've written more than one or two applications in my life that didn't have to store name information in some form. Hey, so, uh, Marcus, Marcus, excuse me. I have to tell something to Rory. Rory, uh, system.security.cryptography. Okie dokie. Okay, Marcus, go ahead. Okay, so we 
we decided that since we do the same thing over and over again, we have to find a better approach in order to stay competitive in today's market space. So right. we decided to totally start over when .NET first became available to us, which was you know, now quite some time ago. And we decided to first build an application framework similar to what Kevin talked about two shows ago, right. where we have all the fundamental pieces in place that we need to build an application, everything from data access to security to automatic updating to Windows forms to web forms, all those things. Um, and the way we built that is we decided that this was not going to be a product for sale, at least not as a whole, but this was going to be a product that was geared towards the types of applications EPS builds. And we discovered that there's really a number of different applications or types of applications we build even in, on one platform. Like, you know, we could build a Windows application that looks like Office, or we could build a Windows application that looks more like, you know, Battleship Gray Windows right. type of stuff. So we built all of these things into our base framework. And the Windows Forms part is, is a very big part of that because, I believe that Windows Forms applications will become more and more important again. I think web apps are great and they're here to stay and have a lot of uses. But I think if you have an application that you use eight hours a day, I'm not convinced that an HTML-based interface is really the best way to go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And with modern technologies like you know, automatic updates and, and also web service to get the data remoted, you really can get most of the benefits of a web application out of a Windows app, mm-hmm. yet you don't have to get the downsides of it, like the second overhead every time you click on a button. So Windows is, is a very big part of Milos, but it's not the only part. It, it, it will also scalability, right, for the desktop yeah, exactly. apps? I mean, instead of having to put all that processing and, and all the resource-intensive stuff on the server, you can actually take advantage of the fact that your users have like 9 gigahertz machines on the desktops, which is something we've been ignoring for a long time. We've been just using these high-powered, you know, bits of steel to run, you know, browsers, which yeah. is crazy. So moving that back onto the desktop is a, is a good thing. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. <laughs> so if you oh. wanted to, Marcus, if you wanted to do, a, you know, a pretty sophisticated application from scratch these days, it would obviously take you a long time. And you've put a lot of time and effort into this framework which is a good idea even for people. Now, I'd like to just mention that the framework isn't commercially available, but it's a good idea for people to do their own frameworks for their own particular needs. And, you know, what kind of time savings have you seen in projects that you've done? Give me an example of a project that's come up where a customer said, you know, we need to do something, blah, 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 and you've been able to whip it out in a certain amount of time. Um, it actually totally depends on the type of application we do. Typically at EPS, we tend to do very large applications. We generally try to get applications that you know, run two years and require five or ten people to work on them. But really quantity-wise, you know, we do a lot more small projects because for every two-year project you get, you probably find ten smaller ones. So we're trying to be competitive in each one of those categories. And we find that on the, the, the low end, we are now competitive in a space where we need to turn something around in two or three weeks or a month that normally would have taken us you know, maybe four or five months because not only do we have these technical objects in our framework, but we also have what we call the business layer. And the business layer allows us to say, okay, we need to store names, and names have multiple phone numbers and multiple addresses, and those are shared across names and all of that type of stuff. And we don't have to start over from scratch because we have basic business objects that take care of names. We have basic UIs that take care of names. 
it sounds like it sounds like a lot of what you know WinFS is doing with schemas in in Longhorn. You're sort yep. of creating these schemas that are specific to things that you use over and over and over again. That that's very that's correct. Yeah, but of course WinFS is mostly about storage, which right. storage is is a big part of what we do, but it's not the only thing we sure. do. So it's also important for us that we have a basic form that looks just like an Outlook contact form, or at least part of it, that has address parsing, all those types of things right, integrated. Right. Yet at the same time, we never assume, or, or the basic assumption is that what we have, we will never be able to use as is. So all this stuff is fundamentally architected to be subclassed and changed. Huh. But, you know, we can take a name and say, you know, we need to store the listeners of the .NET Rocks radio show but in addition to what we normally do, we also need to store their .NET Rocks listener number and a bunch of other stuff. And we just subclass from the classes we already have, and and we add those fields to it and cool. expose them through the interface. And it's it's a very quick task. And at the same time, we are reusing all the difficult parts that were already there, like making sure all the crosslinks work and and you know parsing the addresses when we enter them in one big text box rather than individual fields if that's what we want to do what kind of uh what kind of controls did you create specifically i mean we're all developers out here let's let's talk code here for a minute yeah there's an, a number of things but go ahead no that well that's the question just you know what what specific types of controls and what do they do well there's two different things we did um for one we took all the windows form controls and we subclass them. So in other words, if we build an application, we never use a basic Windows Forms text box. Even if we, what we want is exactly like a regular text box, we still use our subclassed version because that gives us the ability to add more functionality later. And of course, it also gave us the ability to add uh, additional features mm. as, as a default type of right. thing. So if we want to do fancy input masking, uh, for text box, well, that's not natively supported, but our text box supports it. So we took all the controls, every single one of them that's not sealed in the Windows Forms namespace, and we subclassed them, and that's what we use in our own applications. And it allows us to do things like uh, a little while back, we had a customer who decided uh, that since what they were used to, or at least the managers, I guess, uh, was all uppercase text entry because that's what they did on the mainframes they were used to before. They wanted their <laughs> Windows app to work the same way. Yeah. I've seen that too, yeah. What other enhanced kind of controls? I mean, the text box is, yeah, okay, but so you've done some really cool stuff. We did stuff. a lot of that, but then we also uh, built uh, entire custom controls. For instance, we really decided that the basic data grid that ships in .NET, you know, if you look at that, that gives you sore eyeballs. So we decided that we <laughs> wanted our own data grid. Uh, in particular, a read-only data grid that could do what we needed to do in a very performant and, and very straightforward way. So, for instance, we wanted the ability for the grid to look just like like the grid in Outlook, and we wanted to have categories, and we wanted to have the same look and feel, but we wanted it to be extremely flexible. For instance, we wanted totally flexible row height. We wanted to be able to say, okay, we are rendering a group header, and the group header, you know, this is the group that lists certain issues of Code Magazine. So we want to see the issue to cover off that magazine in the group header. Yeah. And at the same time, we want to see a little graph that shows us the reader distribution of this particular issue. And we want all of that in the grid header. Well, if you want something like that, then a lot of the grids out there will probably not help you to do that. And of course, now I'm probably offending one third-party <laughs> right. vendor that has a grid that does just that. But Somebody mentioned Janus Systems. 
Uh, Genesis Systems is actually a very good grid, yeah. And, and actually, the grid we have is kind of like a fundamental grid that we use all over the place, but it's also not the only grid that we use. We actually use a number of third-party vendors yeah. uh, that have very good grids in certain areas. You managed, uh, you, you mentioned Chanus, and Chanus is one of the ones we use. Component One has good stuff for Windows yep. Forms. Too. Um, and there's a number of other vendors out there. I don't want to go into the game of uh, mentioning no, sure. any particular no, names sure, because sure. we'd be pissing off Coke Magazine advertisers. Right, we don't want to do that. They're all good. But, you make make up your own mind. Yeah. Um, but we decided to build some like that grid. Or, or another thing we built is a simple control that could take a simplified version of HTML, like you know, paragraphs, images, bold, italic, underlined, hyperlinks, those types of things. Mm. And we built a very, very lightweight control that can display this type of text. Uh, and, and that allows us to deploy something that's very lightweight, very performant for, for those instances where you need a little bit of HTML functionality, but you really don't care whether the thing can run a script or not. You also have some great sidebar, you know, collapsing bar controls and, and master detail controls. Yep. Really, really good stuff. Did you, do, you, do you find yourself here's, – here's a question I have for you. I have found – it's been my experience that the list box in Windows – is actually a really high-level construct that's hard to penetrate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this has been your experience too, but the sta- I'm talking about the standard list box. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're writing a Windows app in C, you can create a list box, and it's high-level even for the C programmer. So it's very difficult to to you can do your own owner draw stuff for the item, but if you wanted to make like a it resizable, for example, it's just impossible to do. Have you found that um, making your own sort of list boxes from scratch is is more advantageous than uh, trying to use the one that's there and trying to modify it? It's it's a very interesting question. We've had very similar experiences when it comes to using the list box. We still use it for some things, but overall I agree with you. It's very hard to customize that thing. And when we first started to build Milos, we had a lot of uh, discussions internally what we wanted to do about lists because a lot of people said, oh, you know, the lists we have are, really don't help us to do what we need to do. Yeah, and they're kind of critical to Exactly. Most they are very critical. Out. They're at the core of what you're doing in a lot of cases when right. you talk about database applications, right? Yet at the other hand, we, we thought, oh, gee, you know, writing our own lists, how hard is that really going to be? And then I just kind of set out over a weekend to do it kind of as a hobby little project and I started to create a, a class, which we call our list-based class, which has all the logic you need to create lists, including highlighting, grouping, columns, and so forth. Although this class does not do any rendering itself. It just says, okay, now we need to render the next group or something like that. Yeah. And it actually turned out that I could create that class within just a couple of hours. And then I created a subclass thereof that actually did rendering. It looked like a list box. Uh, or a list view, right? And it turned out it actually was not all that hard. No, it's not that difficult. We could build something very, very quickly. Now, of course, it got a little trickier once we started to do dynamic column resizing and yeah. stuff like that. But overall, doing something in particular that's read-only or just has simple interactivity like checkboxes, I found to be pretty straightforward to do. Of course, once you get into data entry and lists you know, modifying item titles and stuff like that. It, it does get a little trickier. So, so Marcus, I mean, we've been talking for the past few minutes, and you mentioned that, I mean, you, you, it's definitely pretty obvious that you're really into this object-oriented design thing. That's correct. And I'm wondering, because in my experience, I've seen a lot of code 
where it seems like object-oriented design or principles or whatever have really been an afterthought or, or even not thought about at all by a lot of developers. Like, mm-hmm. the, they understand how to use the, the concepts in a technical fashion, but not necessarily in, in, like, a philosophical way. Like, maybe they don't understand what to do with what. So are there is there, like, a list of things of really common mistakes that you see in people's code when they attempt to make use of object orientation? Like, things that happen over and over and over again? Well, the number one problem, I think, is that people try to bend the rules, right? It's along the lines of, oh, yeah, I know this is what I'm supposed to do in object-oriented development, but, you know, who does this kind of thing in the, in the real world? Well, the answer is, if you want to be successful with object-oriented development, you've got to do it the object-oriented way. And that's something that is relatively difficult to learn. It's like saying, you know, how do I program correctly? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not really clear-cut. But if you stick to a lot of the basic object-oriented rules, such as put the behavior that goes with a, with a certain object into that class rather than manipulating the object from the outside, then you're probably going to be on the safe side. And I think if people just thought about a few basic principles of object-oriented development, such as encapsulate the data or variables as well as the methods with a certain class rather than doing outside manipulation, I think people could do things a, a lot better and more straightforward. That, that's a good point because that's exactly what I used to do. When I, when I was getting into VB6 and Java and I was new to the world of object orientation, I had this habit of creating my classes and then creating centralized manager classes. And I would always be passing my objects in and I had none of the functionality encapsulated in the objects. And I wasn't really able to reuse them because they weren't these self-contained units that could be you know, swapped in and out of different applications. It was almost useless. Yeah, um, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I just recently had somebody who uh, explained the scenario to me that they couldn't make work very well with object-oriented technologies. And what they had is they had objects representing certain items. And, you know, whatever they did with those items doesn't really matter. But one of those item types, one of the classes, was only good for a certain duration of time. And afterwards, Mm. using it was not valid anymore. So they tried to come up with this uh, elaborate algorithm of finding... Uh, going out and looking through memory to find an instance of that object in memory and say, okay, if it is older than X, disable this object. It can't be used anymore. Huh. And they had huge problems doing that type of thing. While in reality, say, it's like, you know, so. if this object expires after a certain time, the object should know about it. This functionality should be in the object, yeah. and you right. wouldn't have problems using it. So if you use it the wrong way, it becomes incredibly difficult. But if you did it right the first time, if you stuck to the main idea of object-oriented development, then it will be pretty straightforward and much, much better in quality than, than it would be without it. Uh, how many developers are using your framework in-house? Um, EPS right now is a company that's about 20 people big as far as development staff goes. Um, actually, just gone down a little bit, uh, doing a little bit of rehiring. So if there's listeners out there who are good in database design and object-oriented development, give us a call. Um, and those people are all using the framework, of course. I mean, it's, you know, EPS lives and breathes Milos framework. That's, that's really what it all revolves around. Right. And as, as we said before, it's not really for sale. It's not, at least not as a, as a standalone product. But we do use it for the projects, obviously, that we do for the customers. And, those and as, you customers, as you mentioned before, you know, it saved you serious amounts of time when, when starting a project. Exactly. Not just when we start a project, but the goal really is to say we want to do a project that would take us three or four years and we want to be able to do that in nine months. 
Right. Uh, that's that's kind of the goal. So we have the in-house developers using it, and and we also have developers at customer sites using it to yeah. working together with us. So I, I don't really know. It's it's still relatively new, so I'm not exactly sure how many people we actually have using it. And uh, you th- you think that uh, you may make parts of this available commercially? That's a very good question right now. We are definitely thinking about taking some of the tools that go with it because Milos is not just code, it's also processes and tools. So, for instance, we have a class browser that allows us to look at classes similar to what the object browser does, but in more in an object-oriented way. So it's more inheritance-based, the way you look at it. And we're actually thinking about making some of that available as freeware, just you know, hmm. allowing people to reuse it because it's not really not going to hurt us to, to make yeah. that available. Cool. And then there's some other parts that we are considering to make available as, as third-party tools commercially. For instance, we are having this, we're working on this module that allows us to do advanced 3D data visualization in a full real-time animated fashion. So when you, you know, let's say you store stuff in your warehouse and you want to actually see where it is, you could use this engine to visually see your warehouse. You said 3D? Mm-hmm. So, are you using GDI Plus for that, or are you using uh, something a little fancier? Yeah, using we're actually using DirectX to do that. Cool. Um, it's very fascinating stuff, actually. So, do you have uh, an issue with garbage collection? Surprisingly, not. Uh, it, it's really fairly interesting because DirectX is normally used in a totally different way, right? Normally, DirectX is used in things like games, and in games, you run in this tight loop where we constantly re-render the screen and you're also running in an, in an environment where you really have a fixed set of objects and they stay there. And, you know, you may change properties, but you're not adding a million new objects. So the garbage collector really doesn't have a big reason to kick in at that point. Of course, in our scenario, uh, it's different because we are running in a business app and you could do a million things other than looking at the graphs. Right. Uh, but we're doing a lot of what we call frame throttling, where rather than this, Rather than saying, oh, let's render as many frames as possible, we specify a target frame rate we are attempting to get to. And we leave the rest of the resources available for the system. And and that actually fully takes care of it. The garbage collector Mm. kicking in is not really noticeable. Plus, you know, if you walk through your warehouse or you visualize, uh, let's say, a casino floor, and you want to see statistics about uh, the slot machines in that casino floor, well, if that has you know, a third of a second of a delay in the animation, yeah, you're going to notice it, but it's not going to get you killed in a first-person <laughs> shooter game. <you> know? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. You can, not, you can probably, not such a big deal. You can avoid a lot of those uh, GC problems anyway just by scoping your objects a bit wider, can't you? So they have a longer lifetime and they're not going to get picked up or as globally. You know? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. The, the way our visualization engine works is we basically have a world object that has world objects and lights and animation paths, and, yeah. and you know that's hierarchical. So other objects have sub-objects. So the objects really can't get finalized, or the main object can't get finalized unless all the other objects are, are removed. And during, you know, as you walk your world or as you visualize a certain chart, you're really not adding and removing a lot. So right. it doesn't really happen all that much. Yeah, I so obviously we're talking we're we're touching on garbage collection which goes hand in hand with object oriented design and and good design processes and things. How how important is garbage collection as a topic that .net developers need to I mean how critical is it that .net developers need to understand garbage collection in an object oriented world? 
I think it's fairly important because the way garbage collection works in .NET, for one, is great, right? It solves a lot of problems that we've had in the past, especially with reference counting. Um, and I don't think developers really need to know exactly when garbage collection happens and, and how it happens and what gets marked for collection and so forth. But I think it's very important for developers to understand when they're destructure fires and how they clean stuff up because that's a fairly common technique in object-oriented development is to right. put things into the finalizer. Well, you know, in .NET, that may not be such a good idea. So we have an implementation detail that competes with an architectural decision. And people should definitely know about that, know how to use this. Yeah, and, and just as a, as a tip for C-sharp programmers out there, you should use the using clause. Right. Yep. And anytime you're going to create a variable or an object variable on the stack, meaning a scoped variable inside of a a, a sub or a function or a method or a member, use a, when you create that, a, use a using block. And at the end of that using block, the object will be disposed. And for Visual Basic programmers, it means if you dim a new object inside a button click or a sub or function, and it has a dispose method, call that dispose method before you exit the sub. And just with that little simple technique, you can really increase the speed and the performance of your application. Um, you know, so there you go. There's a, we have a question from uh, Eric Jarby, our old friend in Australia, uh, for Marcus. Which one is best, inheriting a control or using message filters to modify and add extra behavior to the controls? Hence that when a control is sealed, message filters is the only way. Or you could rewrite the control from scratch. Yeah, I, that's that's one of those things that's very hard to answer, right? Because it's 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 the typical consultant answer is it depends. Right. How much inheritance, money do you have? Inheritance <laughs> is <laughs> inheritance is very important because it allows you to do a lot of things very straightforward, and it's actually much much easier to use than most people think it is. But of course, inheritance is also a somewhat static mechanism. So let's say you want to build a Let's go back to our text box example. Let's say we want to build a text box that allows autocomplete, so it fills in uh, what we type, and it at the same time allows, let's say, hyperlinks that are underlined in the text box. Well, you have the ability to add that at a subclass, but what if you want a text box that does one or the other? Or what if you now also want to add the hyperlink capabilities to a different object? Well, inheritance really is not that good a, a mechanism to do that because it's very static. It uh, you know, only goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. And breaking a lot of these things out into behaviors, in my mind, is the better way to go. But, of course, how do you actually add these behaviors? You may be able to use events and delegates to do that type of stuff, but often you may have to first subclass to make an object behavior aware and then allow to add these behavior objects via composition. So often it's a combination of both, unless, yeah. of course, you're forced into into using behaviors only because the class is sealed or cannot be inherited from. Right. And that's what he was bringing up. And in that case, is is that a preferable method, using the, uh, the message filter? I'm not exactly sure what he means by message filter. I assume he talked about tying into the message pump. Um, I think in many ways it's the only way to go. Because if right. the uh, if the object doesn't already expose hooks or delegates or something like that that you can use, but uh, now you you're in unmanaged land and you're, you have all that to deal with, right? Yeah, yeah, that and then, and then things get tricky. So, 
hopefully Microsoft will go ahead and take some of these classes that seem to be sealed for no particular reason and right. and make them available. But really, there aren't that many. And I think tooltips, for instance, if I remember correctly, are sealed. I might be wrong there, but you know, why seal that? Right. So, so if anybody wanted to go out and learn quite a bit, I mean, maybe we've got some people out there who are saying, this sounds interesting, but I, I, I haven't really thought about this before. I'd like to know more. Do you have any book recommendations or any resource recommendations, anything on good object-oriented development design? Um, there's a number of books that explain the basics in .NET, mm-hmm. how object-oriented development uh, applies to .NET. Unfortunately, it's not a lot of books out there right now, or none that I'm aware of, that really go into the details and how do you really use that, right? right? I think there's a lot of people out there that say, yeah, I understand what inheritance is, yet when you look at their applications, they never use it because, you know, they don't really understand why subclassing a phone class makes sense, and it doesn't, right? I mean, how many programmers built a typical phone class that always gets used in examples? Mm-hmm. And I think there's, uh, it, it, there's a lot missing there as far as a book about real good object-oriented development and real-life applications and big scenarios goes. There's a number of magazines, of course, that, that uh, have good articles on that. Because having my marketing hat on, I need to mention Cope Magazine. But yeah. well, there you, go. you know, a lot of other magazines out there that have good stuff um, related and, you know, to object-oriented This is a good time to talk about Code Magazine. How long have you been doing that, and what is it? Uh, Code Magazine is a development magazine for Visual Studio developers or developers who program on the Microsoft platform primarily. And we started Code Magazine probably four four or so years ago, mm-hmm. because we thought the magazine that we wanted to read as, as a developer who does a lot of business applications, yet doesn't create, let's say, you know, drivers or some real high-level C++ stuff, uh, we didn't feel that there was a good magazine out there that really covered that in a very professional way. So uh, myself and uh, a companion of mine, Rick Strahl, got together and we decided to start Code Magazine as a relatively small effort at the time focusing on Windows DNA. And it just became very successful and and it grew into its own business. And now Code Magazine has you know, newsstand circulation and is available pretty much worldwide. Uh, many countries, I don't know how many, but probably 15 or 20 or so countries on the newsstand. And it's just become relatively successful. And I think one of the secrets of our success is that we really are software developers that develop software on a day-to-day basis, and we just happen to have a little bit of a background in magazine publishing, hmm. and it worked out great. Well, we'll talk about Code Magazine some more after the break, but it's uh, about that time when we uh, talk about you know advertising and pay the bills and listen to word from our sponsors and some new music from Rory Blythe. So uh, stick around. <laughs> Thank you. 
Do you have a team of Visual Basic 6 developers or Visual Basic developers that you need to now move over to VB.net and ASP.net? Well, look no further than Franklin's Net, yours truly. I will teach your team how to come up to speed in VB.net and ASP.net. Everything that they need to know. We offer really good hands-on, just absolutely really, really good hands-on uh, classes for VB programmers. Um, we have a lot of testimonials. We have tons of material we could send you if you're looking for uh, results. Uh, go to www.franklins.net and check out the VBNet Masterclass and the ASPNet Masterclass. I'd also like you to notice that uh, the classes are available remotely. So now you can tune in remotely, staying in your office or your boardroom or your conference room with your team, and just like you're in class. Check it out, www.franklins.net.
Hey, Carl Franklin here, giving a shout-out to my friends at Data Dynamics. Uh, we've talked a lot about Active Reports on this show, and this is no exception. So I'm talking about ActiveReports.net. This is a port of their popular Active Reports program. If you're currently thinking of doing reporting in .NET for Windows Forms or web applications, check out Active Reports for .NET. Uh, many of my friends in the business use and swear by ActiveReports.net. I use it as well. Let me just tell you, to say that the reporting is simple does it an injustice because it makes you think that it can only do simple things. It can do very powerful things, but you don't have to go through hoops just to set up a simple report. When you create a report, the report exists with your application, okay? It doesn't exist on a server somewhere. All right, we're not talking about enterprise reporting. We're talking about, I have some data, I want to print it out, or I want to show it to the user. PDF format is supported, HTML format is supported, all the great features you'd expect from a reporting engine, drop dead simple, and the best part, it's not going to break the bank. They have a great licensing scheme that's easy to deal with. So check it out at www.datadynamics.com. Now let's get back to our show.
That's some sweet guitar right there. That was a song written by my brother, Jay Franklin, who is actually in the Yahoo chat room right now as we speak. And uh, that's at uh, chat.yahoo.com, question mark, room equals .net rocks live, colon one. All right. So now is the time in our show, and we do a little segment we like to call the Linux Vulnerability of the Week. And what this is, is not that we don't think Windows has bugs and, you know, we're not pointing fingers. We like Linux, but there are some zealots out there who claim that Windows, that Linux does not have bugs, does not have vulnerabilities, and Windows does, and Linux is completely immune from them. And uh, to that we say, ha, and this is uh, also, you can think of this as a service we do to the Linux community to keep them aware of the vulnerabilities that are, they need to be patching. Uh, this one came from uh, March 23rd, which was, gee, just a couple days ago. This is in Ecartis. Several vulnerabilities were reported. Uh, Timo Seranian discovered two vulnerabilities in Ecartis, a mailing list manager. First one is failure to validate user input could lead to disclosure of mailing list passwords. Yeah, that's that's not a that's pretty freaky. That's not a vulnerability. A, you know, Linux doesn't have problems. <laughs> And the second one is multiple buffer overflows. And so it goes on to say that we recommend you update your eCardis package and, you know, all the instructions for updating. So that's, you know, that's pretty heinous. I wouldn't want to give my email password to anybody, you know. Not even mom. Not even know? mom. And a couple – before we let this one go, um, we have another – we have a specific zealot of the week. Uh, of the month. Of the month. <laughs> You know, and we we encourage everybody to go to his blog just to just for a laugh. It's uh, Chris Anthony, chrisanth.blogspot.com, who on his blog has a list: eight reasons not to use Windows. And number two reads as follows: Linux is hacker-proof, Windows is not. <laughs> <laughs> Windows, on top of viruses, has what's called vulnerabilities, meaning buggy code that can be exploited to let a hacker control your system. Linux, due to its open-source nature, does not suffer from this. Linux has no real vulnerabilities. And since Linux has millions of programmers offering code every day, any vulnerabilities, which, by the way, aren't real, are fixed very quickly, <laughs> Right. such as in hours, unlike Microsoft, which it took them one year to fix a vulnerability. I don't even think that's grammatically correct, Chris. But just to show you that you're completely insane, we'd like to read a little news item from news.com. Sent to us by Jim Blizzard, I think. That's Jim the guy who pointed this, this out to us. our attention. And He's it, the already on the West the Coast. The headline is with. as follows. Server breach likely to delay GNOME, G-N-O-M-E. The GNOME project today said Tuesday, rather, that, and this is last Tuesday, that its servers have apparently been breached potentially delaying the latest release of its desktop system for Linux. 
In an email set alert sent Tuesday, the managers of the project told developers that they had found evidence indicating that the server hosting GNOME.org had been breached. GNOME and, now just to remind you, Linux <laughs> is hacker-proof. <Woo>! Windows is <laughs> not. Okay? Just had to come back to that. Well, maybe, maybe they're hosting the GNOME application on Windows servers, Carl. Because that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. A member of the GNOME development team said that the next version of the software, GNOME 2.6, will likely be delayed a few days while the project members investigate the breach. The software was scheduled to be released on Monday. Oh, I'm so, so disappointed, Chris. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me fight. <laughs> And there you go. Can I say something about that real quick? Please. I just want to say that some people have been wondering why we've been drawing attention to Chris Anthony. And in my opinion, it's because he's the kind of guy who's going to make the real open source people say, hey, shut up. You're right. making us look like idiots, <laughs> right? I mean, the, 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 the arguments are totally out there. Um, yep. People are saying, why are you giving this guy any sort of mind share? And it's because it's partially fun and partially because he's just going to make zealots He's look a parody bad. of himself. Yeah. So. So there you go, Chris. Zealotry is irritating on both sides of the train tracks. And, and we just want to say, you know, hey, thanks for listening to the show. Because <laughs> Chris is a listener. He's a listener. Yeah. That's right. He listens so that he can, you know, keep up on mono, basically. Right. Find out what uh, what's missing in mono, apparently. So, uh, Marcus, you still there? I sure am. All right. We have a question from Philippe. Uh, Kratuch, he said, never mind because I'm Czech. Uh, don't even try to pronounce my last name, uh, but I'll try anyway. Kratokvil, uh, Kratokvil, Philippe. I'm just trying, Philippe, you know. Hello, Carl and Rory. First, thanks for a great show. Love listening to you and your guests when the week starts here down under. Still haven't managed to get up a listen to you live. Since you'll be talking about wind forms, uh, would you be able to point me to a good resource on wind forms and data binding? And this is why I bring this up here, Marcus. Maybe you can. I'm coming from VB6, picking up C-sharp, nothing against VBNet, can already hear your comments, and things can already hear my comments. Well, we love C-sharp and their developers. I'm a C-sharp guy. That's yeah. right. We, you know, we don't hate C-sharp. We love C-sharp. We hate Chris Anthony. But, and things are quite different. All the samples on the web, and, and I'm just kidding, Chris. We love you too. All the samples on the web and in books are for simple binding or something like parent-child relationship using grid, fairly basic stuff. I would like to see something like a form with three to four combos and some text boxes and grids. The selection in the combos gives me a primary key for selecting other information from the database. It sounds very simple and done fairly quickly in VB, ADO, and SQL stored procs. Is there nothing like item data for a combo list box in C-sharp VBNet as far as I can see? Uh, I would like to bind the combos to data views. At least that way I could get the display member value member combination. But is this the best way? Should I be looking at data relation? On a scenario where you make a selection in two combos, which will filter entries in the third combo. Anyway, keep up the good work. Uh, regards, Philippe. And he says, Carl, don't worry about the pronunciation. My last name is Jack. So, uh, obviously, here's somebody who came from the managed world and thought he knew what binding was and then got into C Sharp. And, uh, you know, what what is this binding stuff all about in .NET. You find that's a, an issue with uh, your guys as well, Marcus? I find that's a very big issue. I think he, he has a very good point. Unfortunately, I don't have a very good answer for him. 
But currently, in the Everett or Visual Studio 2003 timeframe, I don't think we really have a good answer for him. I think the data binding currently... Um, it's a leaves, bit complex. Leaves a little bit to be desired. It's not just complex, but it leaves a little bit to be desired. Yeah, it doesn't I, seem like it's quite finished, you know. Exactly, and and WinForms actually is is better, right? I mean, in in ASP.NET, data binding is mostly a one-way mechanism, which to me doesn't imply binding. Right. Uh, I think it's going to change. I don't. It know is going to change. How yeah, much no, I can say exactly? No, we can but, talk about that because yeah. we've done we've done demos of ASP.NET. Um, Scott Guthrie talked about it on the show before. So ASP, it, it, it is going to change substantially, right, yeah. in, in Whitby. Well, in ASP.NET anyway, and I think he was talking about Windows Forms, but in ASP.NET mm. it goes two-way. Yeah, and I think it goes the same same deal in, in Windows Forms. It's going to be improved. But right now it's, it's relatively tricky, right? If you have a data set, let's say a strongly typed data set on a form, it's relatively easy to do something with that and hook it up. But it, it gets quite a bit more difficult if, if you use non-standard data objects or if you use you I've know, also delayed had, loading. Yeah. And, I've also had weird problems with text boxes and list boxes, you know, when you try to bind those two. Mm-hmm. First of all, I found the documentation for databindings.add is is wrong. I mean, it's either wrong or it doesn't work, um, one or the other. Um, but basically, when I bind to a data set, let's say, the, the help file says to say, and I'm doing this from memory, uh, if I'm going to bind a text box, it would say textbox1.databindings.add, and then you would give the property name, text, in strings, and then the data source, which they provide in the help file as the data set, and then the data member in you know the data set object, and then in a string that is the data member, which would be table name dot field name. But I found that the only way to get binding to work with text boxes is the for the data source to be the data table, and the the member the data member to be just the name of the field in that table. So there's one little weird thing right there. Well, and then there's this whole other issue of the binding context not being That's right. totally intuitive, right? If you bind two combo boxes to the same thing, you might get unexpected results if you don't know about, you know, binding context and that you may have to create more than one manually and stuff right. like that. So, you know, we, we struggle with that quite a bit. I mean, we're still struggling with some of that in, in the Mila solution platform. Um, but mainly our answer is we're currently... Uh, rolling our own. Well, um, just to give some more tips of uh, specifically what some of the issues are in there, um, one that I talk about in my class all the time, and I end up actually creating a text box, you know, a, a, a new text box from the base class text box, and you guys probably do this too, is that if you've got like a list box of items and you've got text boxes bound to the same data set, the same data table, let's say, um, you know, like master detail, you have a list of names. When you navigate that list, you want the text boxes to change to reflect those values. If you go ahead and change a value in the text box, that value doesn't com- get committed into the data table until the binding manager is done editing. And it doesn't know that it's done editing until you move off the record with the list box. So what I've done is I've created a subclass of the text box where I un, where I hook the on leave uh, uh, protected sub uh, override and on leave happens when you move off the field you know and uh, kind of like lost focus but it's not system wide and then what I do is I determine whether there's a binding to the text box to the text property 
with the, with the uh, data bindings collection. And if there is, in a try-catch that doesn't do anything, it's very, very possible that it could fail, do a, get the binding manager base from that and do an end current edit on it. And that's, that's the kind of stuff you have to look forward to if you're going to be doing any real data binding in, uh, in .NET. So you obviously, you guys have, you know, slain that dragon with your front, with your Milos framework. Or at least attempted to. I mean, as always, data binding is also not a trivial issue, right? I mean, if you bind to the same data set across multiple forms and do weird things, which you probably shouldn't anyway, but it does happen, right? I mean, making sure the update works all over the place if you roll your own is non-trivial. So we're we're still working on on that whole issue, and just making it very user friendly is is not that easy either. So and and we should also mention again that the next version of uh, of .NET is really going to improve binding, and it's not really improving it, but it's sort of taking it to its logical conclusion. You know, doing the kind of stuff that you're doing in the Milos framework, I exactly. imagine. And what I was doing. So let's talk about tablets. Yeah, what are you doing with tablets? I mean, we we had a nice talk last night during the pre-show tech check sort of thing, and and I was really interested in a lot of what you were saying. So why don't we start at the beginning again? Like, what what's going on? What's what's your tablet world like right now? Well, tablets are very cool, right? It's one of those things that since since I saw my first uh, Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> show, you know, I always wanted to have one of those because it just makes so much sense. You have a little tablet that you can carry around and read stuff and even interact with it in sophisticated ways. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, and I've tried to get tablet-like things for a long time, you know, uh, there were Windows CE devices that were kind of like it, but really this whole Maybe you concept, took a notebook and ripped the keyboard off. <laughs> I yeah. ripped the display off and <laughs> took it with me. Yeah, it didn't work so well. Um, the, the whole concept in my mind really took off when Microsoft released their tablet PC mm-hmm. OS and specifications. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the day the first tablet PC became available, you know, I had to have one. And, you know, I'm a developer. Development is what gets me excited, and that's what I do with my tablet PC, right? I write for the tablet PC operating system. And I've been writing that applica- those applications. I've been writing articles about the subject, and I've been talking at conferences about the subject. And I do find that a lot of people are very interested in tablet PC development. And in my mind, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, t- tablet PCs are cool, and everybody asks me if, why I don't have one. They, To tell you the truth, I mean, they're interesting, they're exciting, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm really staying on the sidelines on tablet PC development. I know Rory's really into it. He actually, He's actually doing flash animation with the pen on his tablet PC. But I, I'm sort of waiting for the, you know, either the price to come down or for the features set to increase or, you know, the next wave. I'm gonna, I'll am i probably get one in the next wave. Well, I, really I think you it. said a couple of very key uh, things there. For one, waiting for the next wave is, is a big issue for me, too, because right now I have my tablet PC, I have my notebook. The tablet PC has a 1024 display. It it doesn't have the amount of memory and hard drive space that I want, so I'm, I can run Visual Studio and I can develop Visual Studio applications. But really, I don't have as much screen real estate as I want. Right. And really, debug sessions don't run quite as fast as I want them to either. So it's not a replacement yet for my notebook computer, but I have big hopes that the next generation um, will solve that problem. And, and Rory told me yesterday he already has a tablet that has a much higher resolution, so I'll you know, probably look into that shortly. One one of the things about tablets, though, is that they're really user devices. 
I mean, when when I look at mine, I don't really think about it so much. And this is just a personal a view. Device. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't look at it and think I'm going to wait for this to get better for development. In fact, I want it to be worse for development because I feel that at the moment they're too big. You know, they're they're a little bit too big. They're a little bit too heavy. They're a little bit too feature rich. I'd like to see something like a tablet that's a little bit smaller with a good resolution, um, but not necessarily something I develop on. You know, and that I think would increase popularity of these things, making well, them more appealing to the users. Markets right? really that one can cater to, right? I mean, for the user, you're absolutely right. Uh, they they got to get lighter in particular. Yeah. I don't care about the size that much. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't mind for my display to be a little bigger than it currently is. Sure. Um, because really, the actual display right now on mine, for instance, is smaller than a piece of regular paper. So it could be a tiny bit bigger, but I also want it to be thinner and lighter. Yeah. Because, you know, you have a device that's three and a half pounds or something like that, and, and it doesn't seem it's very heavy, but if you sit on the couch and hold it up to read an article, you'll notice that three and a half pounds do get pretty heavy very quickly. Yeah. I yeah. remember doing my first tablet PC presentation at a conference, and I stood there for 30 minutes with my tablet PC in my hand, and then after 30 minutes, I sat down to do some code samples, and I realized that really my left hand that I used to hold the tablet PC, it just didn't work so well anymore, right? and I could hardly type. So you're not and, all built like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, no, not entirely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have considered running for the governor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they are a little heavy. And I, I was thinking, and, and this is sort of like my, I, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about what I think of tablet PCs in terms of the killer application, right? And and you size, want a, you want a keyboard with wings, right? No, 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 no. And si- size and weight definitely fit in here. But when I was using my tablet for the first week, uh, I was running it with Encarta and OneNote, and I was thinking, you know what? The perfect, the killer application for these things is education. Yeah. And I mean everything. I mean kids in elementary school, yep. middle school, high school, yep. college. I I probably would not have dropped out of as many schools as I did if I had had something as cool as a tablet PC. I mean, you get OneNote Absolutely. on there, and you have your notebook. You get Encarta on there, and you have your encyclopedia. You have Microsoft Reader on there. So instead of schools having to maintain these huge libraries of old, dusty copies of Huckleberry Finn, you go to Project Gutenberg, download it, and just read it. You know? I mean, these things are incredible. With a little bit more... More juice. With a little bit more savvy. Yeah, these these things would really be absolutely incredible. But anyway, to get back to development, what kind of of things are you doing? I know you were talking last night about some low-level stuff. Well, I actually want to interject here and ask you to... Because, you know, I think think maybe there's some listeners who still haven't got what's different about tablet PC development from regular development. And so, you know, I guess the key is the inking technology. Just before you get into answer Rory's question, which I want to know the answer to too, just tell us briefly about what inking is and, mm-hmm. and, and how you, what, what are the controls that you get? Well, inking is, of course, the major feature that, well, there's two major features in tablet PCs, right? One is they're, current, they're generally flat, but the, the big feature... Uh, from a hardware and software point of view, is inking, which means you can use a pen to operate the the tablet, and of course you can use the pen to operate the tablet, uh, you know, as a you know using the pen as a mouse. But you can do a lot more. Really, the pen replaces mouse and keyboard, and even a little bit more because you can write on the tablet, and then you have handwriting recognition, which really really works. Unlike handwriting recognition on a PDA, for instance, which I hate. Mm-hmm. But on a tablet, it really works. Plus, you can do other things with the pen. You can perform certain gestures, and not what Carl is thinking right now, but you can... Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm not the one with a dirty mind on this show. <laughs> hey, don't look at me. I, I'm the class, and Rory's the... Uh, well, anyway. 
you so so basically you can perform certain gestures that uh tell the tablet PC to do something like you can perform a gesture that uh, starts a copy and paste operation um and all of that the API exposes all of that so you can program that so you can introduce your own gestures and your own programs that make something happen and that whole concept of using a pen really is what opens up a whole new world because you now operate uh, a PC, and this is very important to know for people. A tablet PC is a fully functional PC, yeah. right? It's not yeah. a Windows CE device or something like that. It's just like a PC in almost all ways, except you can generally take the display, turn it around, and, and turn it into a flat device. And, of course, it has the digitizer behind the display, which is the device that actually recognizes where the pen is. And that's the big difference in hardware. Uh, yeah, between a tablet PC and a regular PC, but and there's in all also other some ways. there's also some handwriting recognition that that it does right or right. storing. What does it do actually? It's not just handwriting recognition, but it'll actually store written text as data, right? That's correct. So the tablet PC has this data format or this data entity called the ink, the digital ink, which is what you write. And, and ink is basically vector graphics that are very very high resolution, much higher than the display can can show. I think the I don't recall by heart what the, the specs are, but I think it has to be like at least four times higher than screen resolution or something like that. Wow. You're planning ahead, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And We're not that's back really to TWIPs, are we? Uh, no. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> uh, that's really important because handwriting recognition at screen display resolution is, is really not acceptable. But on a tablet PC, the handwriting recognition API works really, really well, yet at the same time you can store the ink as ink and display as ink. So even though you may be able to recognize something as text, you may still uh, want to show it as handwritten text. And then you can do things like copy and paste operations on ink and you know make your text bold or, or recognize certain subsections of text as actual text. And yeah, I was actually surprised at how natural it was. You know, when I, when I write using ink, it's actually my handwriting, and it looks like I wrote it on paper, as opposed to the PDA, where it's that standard one-pressure-fits-all kind of blocky mm-hmm, sort exactly. of text. It's really very natural. And you were saying before that um, the only real difference is that pen. And, and one thing I like to say is that even though all you're really doing is changing the way you interact with the PC, once you make that change, and this isn't for you so much as it is for the listeners, right, because you already know this, once you make that change, you realize how incredibly cool it is to use the PC in that way. And I can't imagine living without a tablet right now. I just wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, I couldn't imagine just using a tablet and then just using the pen, but it's just one of those things that it's just extra functionality. And you may use your tablet in regular... Uh, notebook mode or regular PC mode, and then you go into a meeting and you use it as a tablet, and yeah, it's well, just awesome. When tablet mode makes sense, it's incredibly cool. That, that's the deal with that. But so one thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned that you were into the low-level development, and and I was thinking maybe you could answer a question for me. I could probably go into the news groups and figure it out, or I should have, but I'm a little bit lazy, and I like to wait for guests to come on so I can ask them questions. Um, <laughs> when, when I'm using the tablet, all right, in, in regular mouse mode, I've noticed there's a bit of lag, right? As I move the pen around the screen, the stylus around the screen, the cursor lags a bit. But then when I'm in ink mode, it's dead on, and there's no lag at all. Do you have any idea why that is? is it like yeah, a- I actually can tell you exactly why it is. Basically what happens is when, when the digitizer samples... The, the pen, it happens at a very, very high sampling rate. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, 
some like uh, hundreds and eleven samplings a second is the minimum that needs to be supported, but it's really much higher in general. While a mouse gets sampled uh, or you know, measured where it is, uh, much much less often. So I think it's more like I don't know exactly what it is, but more like twenty-five times or thirty times a second or something like that. Hmm. So what happens is when you write with the pen that pen input comes from a whole different subsystem in the operating system. And it then also translates that down into mouse uh, movements. Hmm. Now, the the other way works as well. You can translate mouse movements into pen movements. So you can do things like develop tablet PC applications on a regular Windows PC. Right. That's one thing is that the tablet SDK works on a regular machine. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Hmm. But of course, when you translate that that way, then you have a much lower sampling rate and a much lower resolution, and it just really lags, and it's really odd. You know, it sounds like uh, this is a good platform for Longhorn with its uh, vector graphics and, you know, sort of blurring the lines between different uh, systems of of measurement, different scales. That's exactly um, right. I also got to have a, a comment from Rob Zelt who says one of the most amazing must-sees on a tablet PC is searching pages, a page's ink for a phrase or keyword. So, like you said before, when you draw, when you when you write some text, it displays it as the text that you draw drew, but it recognizes the, the data, it recognizes the words, and then saves those words and associates those words with a document as well, right? That's, well, it doesn't save it automatically, but it depends on the application that uses it. Okay. But the basic idea of this is when you want to support ink or when an application supports ink, you can use the inking API, and let's say you have a text box or an edit box, bigger text box area that you want to to have inking enabled on, you can just use uh, what's known as an ink collector cr- uh, control or class, and you can uh, point that ink collector at the window handle of that text box, and then you can start re- using the ink. It's all fully automatic. It just works. Wow. And then on that object, on that collector object, there's uh, a member object called ink, and you can just say ink.toString, and it actually gives you the text back. Oh, sweet. It's pretty sweet. That is sweet. Can, it, can I say, too, while we're talking about that, that the API you know, for just getting in there and working with it is much simpler than people would expect. It's a lot easier to get into than I think most people would expect. For oh, such a cool feature. Straightforward, yeah, yeah. For for such a cool feature set, it's really easy to get in there and get going with Rory, it. Rory, did you do any development or were you even alive when they had the old uh, pen computers? Pen computers? Yeah. So see, they're <laughs> blank stare. <laughs> pen computing is nothing new. In fact, they tried to do this stuff back in 1994, 93. Huh. Um, with with the pen computer, and it was sort of the precursor of the tablet, but as yeah. you can imagine... Even, even Microsoft did, right? There was right. Windows for mm-hmm. pen computing. Yeah, we did that at WinSquared, right, Doug? Yeah. yeah, Compact. Wow. And uh, as you can imagine, the PCs of the day were 386s and 486s or whatever they were, and uh, they just... Little slow. Just a little <laughs> slow. And Jeff in the sound room really wanted off. me to mention the Koala Pad on the C64, which was like the bane <laughs> of my existence. <laughs> that thing was so cumbersome. I was not a Commodore guy. I remember going over to a friend's house and seeing their Commodore, and you know when it booted up, you got a basic interpreter. Yeah. And you had to write a program. A little actually, scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, by the way, one other thing I want to mention regarding yeah. the tablet PC stuff, for, for listeners that are really interested in this stuff, obviously in a 
short radio show, we can explain to them how to do tablet PC development. But uh, if they're interested, they can go to our website, either code-magazine.com or eps-cs.com. Yeah, making sure you put the hyphen in there or else you go to Hustler yeah, Magazine. And we will, yeah, yeah, we'll leave it up to an exercise to the listener to figure out where they can. Right. I actually have another question I wanted to ask you about tablet PC development. Now, given your experience with object orientation and obviously with designing these nice frameworks for WinForms or, or just on in general, um, have you done anything? Have you created any suites of controls for Ink applications? Because I know that one of the first things I wanted to do was create controls that would make form-based entry easy and natural right, on the mm-hmm. tablet instead of using the standard text box or whatever. Have you done anything along those yeah, lines? Yeah, this is actually an excellent example of why it makes so much sense to use inheritance and object-oriented development because mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that our Milos platform natively worked with the tablet PC OS. So when you have a text box on a form, we wanted to make sure people can use the pen and do inking. Now, of course, when you do something like that, uh, for listeners that are not familiar with the tablet PC, basically when you want to write somewhere, having some the size of a text box is not all that great, right? You can't <laughs> really write, write yeah. a heck of a lot in there. Hmm. So what you'd have to do is you'd have to go through your application and somehow add an ink overlay to every single text box you have in your forms and then do something whenever the pen you know, gets anywhere near the text box and then maybe enable ink recognition on the form's background or something like that. What mm-hmm. we did, on the other hand, is we used we took our text box class that we used all over the place, right? So we had a great place to hook this stuff into, and we added some static functionality to the text box. In other words, functionality that only runs the first time the text box gets instantiated, and even if you instantiate uh, 10,000 text boxes, it'll only run once. And, mm-hmm. and this behavior checks whether the text box runs in a tablet PC OS, and then we track, if so, we track events. So when the stylus, the pen, gets anywhere near the text box, we fade in this little input panel area nice. right over the text box, Ooh. and you you know, right over it, and as you lift up the pen, the panel fades back out, it recognizes the text and put it back. So you, back you move the, the stylus box. away and it automatically renders that ink as text? Exactly. And so we, we, event, we just use a little timer. That is awesome. And we, we check events like there's a, an event that you can use every time the stylus is moved on the, yeah. on, on the recognition area. So when, Sweet. whenever you lift that up, we say, okay, if you lift it up and For a more quarter than five of a second goes whatever, by yeah. without, without you doing anything, we fade away the panel. Now, if you still move over the panel, the panel may fade back in, but if you really lifted it up, the panel will go away, and as the panel goes away, it'll do the recognition on the text and stuff it back into the and, text and now, box. And now you have one application that is desktop and tablet friendly. Exactly. That is so and cool. And all we had to wow. change was one class, one text box class, right? You didn't have to go through tens of thousands of text boxes and add that functionality all over the place. And that's really the beauty of object-oriented development, right? Well, well, I tell you what, my email address is rory at neapolian.com, <laughs> and you can, you can send me the code there. All right. Actually, you know, the, the white papers I was referring to that mm-hmm. we have on code-magazine.com yeah. and eps-cs.com mm-hmm. explain how to do some of this stuff. Sweet. And it's, of course, content is available huh. uh, for free, so just go to check it out. Exactly. I mean, I'm sort of one of these people who just getting into the technology tends to reinvent a lot, so it'll be really cool to see uh, what else, what other people are doing. Well, we have a surprise for you, Marcus. Uh, Aaron Goldberg, architect of the Tablet PC platform, has called us to say hi. Aaron, Very are you there? Cool. Hi there. Wow, I can't believe you're gracing your, <laughs> our little segment of the internet with your presence here. 
Uh, well, no, I just uh, I saw a mention of it on uh, one of the Tablet PC community sites and oh. figured I'd uh, listen in. I just got back last night from uh, giving some talks over at the uh, Mobile Developers Conference in San Francisco. I was taking the morning off. So. Wow. So um, just I actually wanted to call and let people know we are actually having a uh, an active uh, beta right now for our new tablet PC update uh, that was that's codenamed Lone Star. Um, if people want to actually get some of the new, uh, new new functionality and want to see some of it, we've made some big improvements to both the uh, end user and developer parts of the OS. Wow, great! And you know, I've been trying to get as many people uh, involved with uh, with that as I can. Um, but uh, you know, if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer anything you'd like to know. So, Aaron, you wouldn't want to uh, send us a tablet PC to check out and... and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I'll, uh, I'll mention that to, to some <laughs> folks on the team. We'll see what we can do. I was just saying that, uh, you know, Rory's got one, but I've been holding off. Uh, Sounds like Rory's got uh, probably the M200. Yeah, I have the I have the M205, and you can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've I, got the same I model adore. myself. Yeah. So. I want to get one with the chrome on it, you know, oh so it looks like a 50s Cadillac. <laughs> like, I want to go to a diner and use it, you know? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm more than happy to ask, uh, answer any questions or uh, tell people how to join the beta, whatever you'd like. You know, I, I've, got, I've got five or ten minutes here before I'll have to run. But um, what to, Where can they get in touch with you, Aaron? Well, we, we've got actually an email address um, that they can just email and we'll get an auto-response for instructions on how to join the beta. Okay. Um, we haven't updated the email address yet because uh, we've been busily working at getting our MDC conference together. But um, they can just email tabalpha at microsoft.com. That's T-A-B-alpha at microsoft.com. Great. So get an auto-response and uh, give them instructions. Uh, there's both the the new o, uh, Lone Star OS update is actually part of Windows XP SP2. Now, did you say... Did you say Winstar or Linstar? Lone Star. The Lone Star. Update. Lone Star. L O N E S T A. That's just the code name for it. Uh, okay. The official name will probably be uh, uh, tab- Windows XP Tablet PC Edition 2004. Okay. Uh, it's a free update for all existing tablet users, and when it comes out, of course, all new tablets will come with it. It um, basically has some great enhance- enhancements to the end user functionality. Specifically, the uh, the tablet PC input panel has been greatly improved. To, uh, to allow for uh, uh, pretty much an, an, uh, an ideal uh, pen-to-text experience. Excellent. So the it is much it, better. You'll, yeah. you'll, you'll notice just how greatly it's been improved. Yeah, I, I, I used Scoble's uh, tablet at a geek dinner, and he had it on his, and it was so much nicer than what's out there now. And what's out there now works, but the, the new system really sped things up and made it a lot easier. So do you guys have uh, stuff planned for the Whidbey time frame, or do you have uh, anything you can talk about? Well, I, um, I, I can tell you we're, we're more bound to the Windows schedule than we are to the Visual Studio schedule. So but you're more looking ahead. We, we do work closely with those guys. Um, for, for Lone Star, we've got some great platform improvements that actually, uh, that actually will, will uh, I won't go into the details. You can actually, if you join the beta, there's a, a webcast I did a, a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that you can get instructions on how to, uh, how to view, uh, and I go over all the new features in the platform. But there's, we made some great improvements, actually, on the, uh, on the input side. We have an entire new object model uh, called the Real-Time Stylist that actually allows you to build custom components for input. 
uh, oh, sweet. to basically get get at all the data coming right from the digitizer. Awesome. And manipulate it, change it, do whatever you want with it. We are uh, focused uh, focused on delivering uh, lots of new functionality uh, you know, in the Longhorn time frame and uh, doing what we can uh, even before that if, if, uh, if those are the possibilities were released. But, but I am working very closely with uh, a bunch of the folks uh, on the WIDZ team to make sure that uh, that you know we we're tied in with them as much as we can. Excellent. Well, Aaron, uh, thanks thanks for stopping by and and telling us about that. The email address is tabalpha at microsoft dot com if you want to get on the beta for the next uh, tablet PC stuff. Thanks. How, how can I thank you enough? Can we send you a coffee mug? Um, sure, sure. Be be more than happy. All right. Get to, let, we'll get your address, get your mailing address. Uh, Jeff will get that, or you can email it to us, and, and we'll send you a cup. Yeah, thanks okay, a lot for calling. That was cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Uh, thank you. So I just wanted to say, while we're still talking about development um, on the on the tablet, we had another question from a reader, Craig Ellis. Uh, he's a little confused. Can I do development for my tablet PC with my desktop? And I just wanted to be absolutely clear, you, you can. You just go and download the tablet PC SDK, and you can do everything on your desktop. Um, and it will use the mouse instead of a stylus. It's not as cool, and you probably won't be able to do everything you want to do because, for example, trying to write text with a mouse is a little tough, but you can learn, right. you can figure out how to get around the SDK and how to develop using that, so it's a good thing. Well, Andy could even get uh, a little external pad, a yeah. little digitizer or something like that, which is much cheaper than a tablet. The Wacom thing. Yeah, the Wacom exactly. tablets, yeah. yeah. Because Wacom, with the mouse, Wacom. it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be able to test incorrect cognition while you're trying to simulate the input with the mouse because the mouse input is just so, you know, low res. And, and it, you know, if your handwriting is bad without a mouse, it's going to be much worse yeah. with one. So we want to announce at this time that if you know the secret namespace of the week to go ahead and uh, communicate that to us uh, from our webpage, you can find all the different ways you can communicate. That would be www.franklins.net slash call.netrocks. And uh, if you have been listening and you know it, go ahead and, and send us that now. And we're going to pick a lucky winner at random, and we're going to be sending that winner this week. We're going to be sending a box of uh, Windows Server 2003 Standard Edition with five client licenses. We're running out of uh, uh, the, the big enterprise ones. And uh, so, and that comes complements of the Microsoft Regional Director Program, where you can find all your regional director needs at microsoftregionaldirectors.com. We encourage you to check out and contact your local regional director. Marcus, yeah. uh, Rob Zelt wants to know, are you going to be uh, entering the $100,000 tablet PC contest? <laughs> um, <laughs> thought about it, but no. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure if he's talking the same about the same contest that I'm thinking about, but uh, Microsoft had this contest for building tablet PC power toys and all kinds of things. And, and uh, it, it, it did tickle my fancy, but... Uh, <laughs> 100000 uh, would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's at www.doesyourappthinkinink.com. I guess there's a big six-figure contest going on, which is pretty cool. Wow. So, um, Marcus, who are some of the companies that you've done projects for with uh, with tablet development uh, at EPS? Actually, it's it's very slow. It's it's one of those things where 
you get a lot of interest through it, but it's still a little slow to, to take off. Yeah, I we, think had a a lot of, we had a comment on the on the chat line that said, I love the tablet PC, but trying to convince my boss to go for it is, is like pulling teeth. Yeah. Right, and here's what the problem generally is. It's basically, you know, you said it perfectly. It's like, well, it's kind of cool, but what do I really do with it? And I'll just stay on the sideline until it becomes more mainstream. And that is a way of thinking that, um, a lot of developers have because for a developer, a tablet PC is not really very natural, right? For a developer, we sit at the desk or maybe we have a notebook computer on our laps. But in general, a developer works in an, in an environment where you can sit down and, and work with your computer. While in the wild, of course, there's a lot of people that have jobs where they cannot sit down and use a computer. Yeah. And of course, all these people probably have a need for a PC-like device, some more powerful than a PDA, let's just but think some of, they can carry around. Yeah, right? let's just think of some of the situations in which a tablet PC works really well. I can think of one right off the bat, which is hospitals. Hospitals is perfect. Trainers. Yep. How about you standing in your classroom having a tablet PC being able to walk around? Well, And yeah. what about real estate? This is another one I've thought about. It would be oh, really yeah. nice to have... Well, for example, my father's a real estate appraiser, and he, he wanted to get a PDA so that he could draw diagrams of houses as he walks around them and determines the dimensions and everything, but they're too small, and they just aren't quite accurate enough for him. And a tablet PC app that handled that sort of functionality would make my father a customer, and there's tons of people just like him. Yeah, how about real estate agents who have right, all the houses estate, yeah. right there? And they, they want to have, have the to, photos, they want to have the forms, yeah, they want to have do is they information print out, collection. They print yeah. out lists in their office and then they drive around and stuff. And if right. there isn't any information that they can get on that list, they're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting one. Clean room. A what? A, recent, a clean room environment. Oh, okay. Where they put together electronic components. For or, instance, or, yeah. Recently yeah. had contact with someone who... They had a clean room environment and they had people that needed to do quality assurance and they basically needed to walk around and they needed to fill out forms to make sure all the, the quality and safety procedures were followed mm -hmm. correctly. But, of course, they couldn't take a piece of paper and a pen in there. <laughs> right? So that I thought was interesting. My brother Jay is suggesting lawn care and construction companies. Yeah. You know? uh, another interesting one is I hear that the San Francisco 49ers are using it to, to map out plays and strategy for games that they used to fax from the sideline up to the uh, somewhere else in the stadium, and now they're just using tablet PCs and wireless devices. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the general rules can be any place you have somebody going out into the field with a big stack of paper they have to fill out, a tablet PC would be a great exactly. replacement for that paper. And you know, I mean, concerts, great. Concerts, yeah. for instance. I have a client who, who runs concerts with tablet PCs where they do all the audio mm -hmm. and lighting uh, that they used to just have walkie-talkies and communicate with each other and needed lots and lots of people. Now they just have two guys walking around with a tablet PC. And you, does he have, like, sliders on the piece, on the tablet that he exactly. can use to control? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, really cool. Yeah, they use mostly yeah. sliders, so they don't really do much ink recognition. But Well, that's interesting because that even gets to thinking about home automation, right? Having, like, a tablet PC that hooks up to your lighting system, your alarm system, you're this system, you're that system. You could either mount it in a wall or you could actually walk around with it and use yeah, the device for whatever fridge, purposes. Have a shopping list. Yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. You're, you're, sitting, you're sitting on your couch, you're reading a book in, in Microsoft Reader, and you bring up your automation app, and you can actually bring up the lights if they're a little bit too dark from where you're sitting. Mm -hmm. A lot of cool stuff out there. That or, could be done. you know, how about a police officer? Did you ever see how police officers drive around with the notebooks in there? Yeah. There's one now, as a matter of fact. And, and I just uh, heard yeah. their siren. <laughs> And I think for them it would be great, you know, instead of having this big clunky device in, yeah. in the car, they'd have a tablet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
it, it really, you can, I mean, the stuff's all over the place. It's just a matter of doing it, I think. Yeah, and it's just a matter of yeah. us developers not generally thinking about these types of things because yeah. it's kind of the opposite of what we do. I know, I kind of I hate even throwing these ideas out. You know? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I want to go and do them. But at the same time, I love tablets so much that I want to see them proliferate and flourish. And so right. maybe if you can get one person thinking, well, wouldn't this be a cool place to use a tablet, then that's a little bit more mindshare. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the uh, common misconceptions is that tablet PCs are really very expensive, while in reality, they're not that much more expensive than regular notebooks. Right. And the big difference between a tablet PC and a notebook is really the digitizer behind the display. Right. Mm, so once yeah. that gets produced uh, in, in bigger quantities, I think the price of that will come down. And then once creating a, a, a regular display... It's not much difference in price from a notebook with the digitizer and the display. You know, why even build a notebook that doesn't have that functionality built in? And heck, if yeah. you never want to use it, don't use it. But it's there just like you have another, you know, you may have a FireWire port on your notebook, but if you don't use it, it really doesn't matter. Well, I think the digitizers will come down in price where it's kind of the same deal. You can just throw them in and all of a sudden every notebook is going to be pen enabled. I got a good point here. And that is that, you know, just because we have the tablet doesn't mean that every application is a candidate for it. Of course. Somebody just uh, mentioned something that sounds a little ridiculous and I I won't name names, but um, here's one, uh, a comment. There are already touchscreen, uh, touchscreens in restaurants. You could carry this tablet and order the food as you take the order. Now, okay. But a waitress gets paid what? You know, uh, how much is a, uh, how much does it cost the restaurant to have uh, tablet PCs for all their waitresses mm-hmm. versus how much money are they making on ham and eggs? You know what I'm saying? So here's a situation where paper works just fine. Thank you very much. And or even on the PDA. other hand, you already have a lot of restaurants that have handheld devices, yeah. right? PDA so tablet makes PC sense might there. be a little. PDA might be a better yeah. thing. But there. but actually, to 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 follow up on that. Um, I've just recently talked to a potential client who's doing a lot in the pizza industry. And they have very sophisticated ways of ordering food because when you build a pizza, it's not like ordering you know, the all-American burger, but instead you say, I'm starting out with this and I'm adding the following ingredients. Right. I know so plenty of guys who own – I know a guy who owns a pizza restaurant where he had a custom application – or he bought an application that's written in VB that's a touchscreen app specifically for – it's the guy in Ledger. Yeah, uh, it, he he bought this thing that's just for pizza restaurants, and it's a touchscreen thing, and that's it, exactly what it is. When they call, it's boink, bink, 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 bink. Your pizza's in the oven and ready to go. Yeah, so you know, for that, I could envision using a tablet PC. You could even use it as a tray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, dual purpose. You yeah, can exactly. bring your drinks on. <laughs> well, no, it, th- with a tablet PC though, it's. I mean, they are really multi-purpose. Not. I mean, you know, in the joking sense about the train and everything, but also back like when we were talking about the uh, the living room scenario, where you use it both for your entertainment and for monitoring. You know, like maybe various household functions and items like the lighting and you get your mail on it at the same time. When I'm using my tablet, I'm usually doing several things at once. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do want to follow up on one of the things you said. It's a common misconception that the tablet is a touch operating system. Uh, A tablet PC is not a touch screen. Yeah, no touch Uh, at all. It requires an active pen, right? Exactly. It's actually an electromagnetic digitizer, which is not touch sensitive at all, Although it is pressure sensitive, in other words, mm-hmm. you know you can touch it with your fingernail and it'll not react to it. However, it will know how hard you held down on your pen, which is uh, kind of contradictory, but that's the way it is. Yeah. But what makes yeah. this very interesting is 
that since no touch is really required, the digitizer can actually sense the pen as it is in the air over the display. And I've seen some interesting uses for that where the tablet OS not just senses the pen, but it also senses its orientation. So you can rotate it, uh, it around its axis, and, and the tablet PC will know wow. where it is and what direction it is. So you can, you can so use it in where 3D the applications. In. You, know, you can use the pen to rotate something in 3D space for hmm. Wow, I don't know if it has a real <laughs> use, but it's definitely very cool. That's an interesting <laughs> idea. I, was, huh. I never thought of that before. Yeah. Well, uh, Marcus, any last-minute words that you want to uh, impart on our listening audience before we wrap um, things up here? Well, I just want to encourage people to go ahead, check out some of these cool object-oriented features, cool Windows form features, all the stuff we've talked about. Uh, I want to encourage you to, you know, if you want to do more research, come to our websites. Um, Okay. Check out some of the free information we give away. And there's other sites out there, too, that are obviously MSDN. And there's other MSDN. sites out there as well. Yeah. MSDN, we'll put a link to that and maybe a couple other places. Exactly. Well, at this point, we would like to uh, say goodbye to Marcus, and we'd like to announce the winner of the uh, the box of Windows Server 2003 Standard Edition with five client licenses. It is... Jeff Strong. Woohoo! Bravo. Bravo! Congratulations, Jeff! Bravo! Bravo! Yes, Bravo! Bravo. You are Show. the proud owner of a bouncing baby box, and uh, use it in good health. And you'll have to tell us—you'll have to tell us how you used it, because we want to know. We want to hear your stories, right? All right. Well, on behalf of myself and Rory and uh, Marcus and the tablet developers everywhere, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. And I got to say, happy birthday to Luke Cutman, who wrote Sharp Reader. It was his birthday a couple days ago. All right, Luke. So, yeah. Take it easy. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Yeah.